Welcome back to Deep Thoughts, ladies and gentlemen. So, you know, I usually cover episodes that are like very flashy and interesting and very accessible. But something occurred to me a couple days ago I want to share with you guys because it's useful. Today's episode is about a phenomenon. And if this applies to you, it will be a gift. The gift is going to be when something bad happens to you, what do you do? What does it mean? How down and out are you if something bad happens to you? I've got all kinds of episodes in the first season, the second season, and throughout the show about picking yourself up after, you know, you've been knocked down somehow. I still think those have extreme value. What this episode is going to be about is sort of a phenomenon that I think might be sort of the attrition of the universe, and it's almost a therapeutic thing that happens to us. It will turn the negative 90 degrees, so maybe you can look at it a completely different way. And this includes anything and everything that you would construe as a negative event in your life, okay? From horrific to light, right? Times are kind of weird right now. Times are probably going to get more weird in 2024 as the global elites fight for control. And they're going to try to, you know, boil us like frogs, like they're doing. But people are fighting back. But, you know, we have paid for their weapons against us from every conceivable metric and, and dimension of existence. We have paid for it with our own money, our tax money. Our tax money is literally devil dollars for the most part, right? goes off to do horrific things to people that may or may not be guilty of something. If you think they're guilty, just go back a little bit further and find out who, who drew first blood, right? I only say that because it illustrates the severity of what may or may not occur in the near future. Now, again, a lot of this stuff is just hype. But this doesn't have anything to do necessarily with what might be occurring in the near future. We don't want to manifest negativity. We want to manifest victory. So let me uh, take a little bit of the edge off of what may be construed as a sign that things are going to go bad for you. I think most of you know that when things are going good, we don't pay attention to a whole lot of things. I'll give you a stupid little example that's real. I take a certain amount of vitamins every day. I take C. I take zinc, copper. Uh, I might take some milk thistle. Sometimes I go through bouts like wintertime when I look up and the planes are leaving clouds in the sky. I'll take my B-17 because whatever I'm catching, whatever I'm ingesting that's a foreign body, I'm putting in clips of electrons to annihilate anything that's going to try to multiply my body. Zinc will really slow down any type of RNA replication, etc. But now here's the thing. When I'm healthy... Like just totally healthy, I might go slip into a phase where I don't take my vitamins in the morning because I'm healthy. I don't even think about it. Now, again, when they put stuff in the sky, that reminds me. I don't have to be sick to look up and go, what the hell's going on? People are noticing that around the world. Our episode 551 got removed. It was all about that. Go check out Rumble or BitChute. Just go to deepthoughtsradio.com to find the direct links. Usually, what I've tried to do, and it's been very successful, you want to find in my episodes, just type DTR, 
and either the episode number, which that was 551, or the subject matter. And on Rumble or Bedshoot, you'll come up great for you. I was noticing other people going through some issues in my life. And something dawned on me because there's this muscle memory I've got for when something negative takes place. And it has to do with noticing your life. Noticing what's really going on in your life. When it's great, we don't notice as much. But when it's negative, we notice everything. And like I said, eight years ago, if the world elite were smart, they would have blessed the whole world with a utopian existence and then done all their shenanigans. And then we wouldn't notice. And then they would just wake up one day and it'd all be over. But instead, the idiots are Baphomet worshipers, and so they believe in suffering. So they have created a world of suffering, heightening all of our senses to seeing everything that's going wrong. Well, why, is, why am I broke? Why is this? Why is that, right? It's going to be their fatal flaw. But on a psychological, personal level, there's something that happens that's kind of magical. I told you guys several times that when you have a really good business that you've built for yourself, you're self-employed, you're a contractor, or you own a business by yourself, or you own a business with employees, and things are going great. I've told you guys over and over, get back into that business every day as if it's the first day, and you need to grow, and you need to fortify, and you need to diversify. Treat every day as if you're going to lose your business tomorrow. You're going to lose your clients tomorrow due to a you know catastrophe. Look at 2020. I lost a bunch of clients. I never thought would ever uh, disappear. And it was only for about six months, but six months can hurt financially, right? I mean, if you're nut every month with six grand and you had uh, 40 grand in the bank and you go six months with no money, you had that rainy day money and boy, it rained and it was legally illegally, I should say, perpetrating itself as a legal thing, and it was keeping everybody from opening their businesses. And of course, the banks never uh, behaved like there was a global catastrophe going. They wanted their interest rates, right? So negative things can happen to us. You can be in a great relationship and it can fall apart. You can be in a really crappy job and you get the next job, your dream job next. But I can't shake this notion that it's because of the negative thing that happened that made the positive thing possible. So I'm going to take you through some things in my life that took place, how I processed it, how I recovered. Now, as I tell my little stories, what I want you to do is to symbolically convert my stories to situations that you've been in to see if perhaps we have something in common of how we solve problems. I think this episode has value because when do you ever sit down with anybody who talks about this kind of stuff? Maybe if you have a really good friend, maybe if you're really close to a parent, a relative, you get these kind of conversations and they can be worth their weight in gold, you know? I'm trying to, I'm debating which ones to tell you guys because some of them go back a long way. Now, the archetype of the one I'm going to give you as a, an adult is very in your face. But I'm going to give you some boy called Sue ones 
which I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's a song about a guy who chases down his father to kill him because he, his father named him Sue, a female name, in the middle of like whatever, the 50s or whenever the song was written. And when he finally meets his father, his father said, look, I knew I was not any good as a father, so I knew I wasn't going to be there for you, so I called you Sue so that you get roughed up as a young kid. Thus, you would have the kind of empirical training that I wasn't going to be able to give you. It's a brilliant song. And kind of a wild story. Makes you wonder if there's any truth to it, right? You think you just change your name, right? When I was a kid, my father, uh, it was he was a very young guy. He was about 23 when he had me. And he's just a fun-loving dude, man. But he... <laughs> He didn't quite understand the dynamics of child psychology. And so he would show me or allow me to watch, I should say. He didn't like say, come in here and you got to watch this. But he allowed me to watch whatever's on TV. And I saw a couple scary movies when I was a kid. One was called The Hand. And one was, uh, I forgot what it was called, but it was about this little tiki doll from Africa. And it's this little doll about maybe 14 inches tall. Little dude had a spear and he had this really cool necklace. The necklace was oversized, so a human being could technically put it on. This guy brings it home, gives it to his wife, and she's like, oh my gosh, this is kind of weird, but I like that necklace. And he's like, oh, don't, don't touch the necklace, man. So she agrees not to touch it, but as soon as her husband goes to work in the morning, he takes, she takes it off, puts it on, and that activates a little dude. He gets to come alive. And all he did was run around the house. I don't even remember how it ended. I'm sure she killed it or something, but... He's stabbing her in the leg and shit with his little tiny spear, man. And he's just, yeah, 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 yeah. He's screaming this thing, this little chant from Africa, right? He's not really like a human being technically in his face. He's kind of got a mask, you know, so he's not any one race or anything. But that freaked me out, okay? But my dad liked to scare me. And he was military. I don't know if he really knew the genius of what he was doing, but that was his version of a boy called Sue. And so I started having nightmares, all kinds of crazy fucking nightmares. And I had this one recurring nightmare where I was kind of being tortured by this mannequin with one of those slashed necks I've talked about a couple of times. I'm only mentioning this because it was a pivotal moment in my life when I finally conquered the monster in my dreams. Again, a negative that gave me a forever positive. I'm dreaming this dream from probably four to seven and we had moved out in the country to this really nice pad my uncle owned initially. And he didn't like being outside of town, so he sold to my dad, who's his brother. And so my parents had this really cool, like their own private, you know, big suite room and a, and a bathroom off the, off the bedroom, which I thought was like, whoa, what are we in Vegas or something? And so I had this nightmare. This being is like, putting me in a logic loop where I can't get up without breaking some shit. And she's saying, don't break anything. And I finally just said, I'm not putting up with this anymore. I threw the blanket over this thing and started stomping on it and whatever. I'm only seven, right? But it was done. I had conquered this, this thing. I don't remember how long the fight lasted. There's one more encounter with this being. It's really weird. But I'll tell you how it went in the second one. It's important. But anyway, I get up. I go into my parents' bedroom. It's nicely lit. They're not there. The bathroom's red hot light, and it's kind of in a, I don't know, maybe an evening setting or early morning or something. I go in there, and Linda Carter is sitting on the toilet lid, so she's not going to the restroom or anything. She's in this burgundy 
robe with this, her hair was kind of curly at the time in my dream. I don't think it was ever curly in real life, like curly. And I'm like, whoa, this is Wonder Woman. Oh boy. I sat down on her lap and she smiles at me and then her head falls out of her hair and she's got that cut neck that the monster has, right? And I remember waking up immediately, but I wasn't, I didn't have the dream anymore. Strange. Not until I was 12 years old. But here's what started happening in my real life. I started getting moved around. I started becoming the new kid in town. And when new, you're the new kid in town and all the little kids try to rough you up and I wasn't afraid of anybody. Because I was like, man, you gotta, you're not even close to the monster I've been fighting for two years of my life as a kid. So that gave me some confidence. Bizarre, weird confidence, right? Then fast forward to 12 years old. Now I'm in a really rough neighborhood in uh, Boston. Lots of fighting, lots of crazy shit. I'm still a kid, but you know, I mean, it seems... There's a little difference between getting punched in the face as a young kid. They get punched in the face as a slightly older guy other than they can kill you nowadays. But I go back to the Midwest and I spend the night at my cousin's house. And I apparently I was like sleepwalking and I was talking to myself. Now, what they don't know is in my dream that that mannequin monster showed up, whatever you want to call it. The second that thing shows up in my dream. I'm just brawling immediately. I'm like, I'm not afraid of you. Let's just go for it. And we're fighting like a movie down a staircase. And fighting, fighting, fighting. And it's, I can't really hurt it. It's not going to bleed or anything. But there's this little, uh, there's this little room that you put your jackets because the staircase went down and you could cut left and you can go through this little jacket room and you'd be in the kitchen. So this thing is like, Wailing on me, I'm wailing on it, and I'm kind of falling backwards, and I'm kicking it back inside this room, and I shut the door behind it, and then I'm trying to get the door shut to lock it in that room, and I did. And the funny thing was, as soon as the door shut, I looked to my left, and everyone's sitting at the dinner table, just kind of chilling out. Hey, what's going on? Come on, get some food. I was like, okay, no problem. No more fear. Never saw that thing again. But, I, you know, I'll give you an idea of what would happen if I did, you know, just be the same old brawl. Now I've totally conquered this thing. I've managed to hold my own in the prison of Boston, right? I come back to my little hometown. Everything's good. I only tell you that one because that set me up emotionally as a kid to just not fear anything, you know? I concede that if I'm fighting someone who can kick my ass, well, maybe I'll get my ass kicked. It's just, just fucking law of the land, man, right? Being afraid is a whole different emotion. That's paralyzing. Yeah. The only other thing that I would say might have been a negative motivator by being in the Midwest was that when you're in the Midwest in a tiny little town, you have a perception that the rest of the world has more than you. You turn on the TV, there's beaches, there's Hollywood, there's pick any place on the planet. People have more than you because you're stuck in this little town. So I use that time extremely wisely. You know, I got, I've been a painter since I was a really young kid. I kept painting. I moved from oils to acrylics. Found out it dried real fast. That was awesome. Got my first computer after I saw Tron. Started programming my ass off. I always stayed really physically fit. Played football for a year. I played it in Boston. But I never I never grew any further, right? So all my other buddies are like turning into giants. And I'm like, well, I'm average size, but whatever. Now, here's the cool thing. By perceiving that I had less, I worked extra hard with what I had. By the time I was 18, 
I was a full-blown engineer in most languages that were out there. Pascal, only thing I had to do was learn um, object-oriented Pascal. C++, C was there, but C wasn't being used as much. And it turns into C++. Now, I'm starting life, real life. I'm by myself. I'm in California. My parents aren't rich. Like I think I told you guys, I had 236 bucks in my pocket. It took me $100 for gas to get here. And then I immediately bummed a room for free for a couple of months. And then I got the job at the TurboTax place in 87, which was called Mac Attacks at the time. Tiny little company. Okay. Life would be going really, really well. And then it would, someone would hit the brakes in the universe. It's almost like Clash of the Titans when they're looking down the Colosseum and they reach in, they grab you and they put you back on a shelf. Or they introduce a monster in there to come get you. Life changes on a dime sometimes, doesn't it? I'm working at this tax place. I'm just getting through some little ones here. Then we're going to get to the bigger ones. And I get laid off because they spent a bunch of money expanding the company. I was a junior engineer. I was programming the tax product on the Apple IIGS. Still encoding forms like crazy. And I get notice, right? I'm out. And I was making a lot of money for my age, and they were totally an age discrimination company at the time. Absolutely told in my face when I got a $15,000 reduction in my pay that I should feel lucky to make how much money I'm making when I was the best coder in the whole place. I go in to get my stuff. And this dude runs up to me and gives me this recycler ad, which looks like a little fortune cookie. Recycler for you younger folks is what, uh, or folks that didn't live in Los Angeles. It was like Craigslist, but it was printed out every day. And it was just tons and tons of like ads. Anything. Uh, Motley Crue came together on recycler, just to put it, put it in perspective, right? If you needed something, you just put it in recycler. Well, this company in Oxnard that lived in a beach house, video game company called Atomic Entertainment, Put a lad in for a video game artist. Well, I had already been drawing digitally for, gosh, at least five years. Drawing all kinds of wild art at work because I had these computers, these giant monitors. And I was just drawing like Eddie from Iron Maiden. I drew a whole species of people that were uh, my cartoon characters. Just experimenting constantly, right? Drew the manual covers, drew vector art, drew bitmap art. But I get to this company and they're like... We're doing the first 256 color games. The top of the crop is Omega, and the rest is all these Windows, or these PCs, excuse me, with a VGA card, which allowed you to do 256. But nobody owned those cards, right? They're expensive, and I'm like, well, I know painting, and I know color theory, and I know digital art. I'm really good at this. But I don't own a computer that does that, so they go, take that computer right there, here's a floppy, go home and come back tomorrow. So I went home. And I spent the whole night, I think I was listening to Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guy of the Galaxy, the original BBC broadcast. And I'm just drawing. I'm drawing under, underwater aquatic bases. I'm drawing neighborhoods. I'm drawing everything that would kind of cover a spectrum, above ground subways that are kind of dirty. First time I've ever done this. Take back to floppy. Take it to... Now, again, I just got laid off. This is 24 hours well, I'd say within 48 hours of being laid off, I'm doing this at night. I take it back. The art director goes, man, you're good. I'll, I'm good. I'll hire you right away. But now you got to meet the CEO. This is my famous story. 
of sitting on a leather sofa at a beach house. The doors open. It's summertime. It's not. It's actually April, but it was like summer. And there's a big fly in the room, and he just keeps flying in a big circle. And the CEO sits down. He's this chip designer from uh, IBM. He had written this game engine that was amazing, but he didn't know how to do games. I mean, he just wrote like a room swapper thing, right? Smooth scrolling on before 286, man. It was unbelievable. Only because this guy knew the chip. Could you ever do this, right? So here comes this fly. I'm thinking to myself, man, I'm going to catch that fly. So here it comes, this big old fat fly on his last day of life, right? Huge mama. And I reach up and I grab it. I look at the CEO. I'm like 19 years old. I say, excuse me. I walk up to the wall and I throw it at the wall to knock it out and then I stepped on it. And then I sat back down on the sofa. And the CEO just looked at me and went like, oh my God, you're hired. Boom. That night I drew the logo. That night I got my first gig, drawn on a game called uh, Robo Wars which was futuristic San Francisco. Now, part of that is some negative thoughts that turned into skills that may be optimistic about another negative thing that happened in my future. Being laid off with no money. No money at all. Thank God I had shifted from my $850 a month apartment in 1987, 88, to a garage with this great family I was living with at the time. It's all furnished and cool, man. So my rent was super low. I can't remember what it was. But life continues. Now, one of the things that happens when you're young and you're successful is that you don't have to grow up as fast as other people. And what do I mean by that? Maturity usually comes out of sheer loss. Why else would it come? The only other answer that I've been able to find is your parents are very mature people, which means either they're ahead of the curve, they had really good parents that engaged them and taught them how to be mature, or they're older parents. Uh, I remember working at a company and it was myself and two other dudes, and the maturity level just went from me being probably the most immature, crazy guy, to slightly more mature and really mature. And our parents were progressively older as they had us. It was very interesting. But I had to overcome these amazing freedoms I had as a kid, which definitely souped up my creative side. Because I wasn't living in any prison, I was quite opposite. My dad was always gone playing army uh, or dating some chick. And so like, I would go a month at home without ever seeing the dude, right? They gave me a lot of freedom. They gave me a chance to discipline myself. Plus he was army. So he was like, clean the house so I can eat off the floor. Here's my boots, spit shine these babies until they're absolutely glass and press all my clothes to absolutely start perfectness. So if a general looks me up and down, I pass with flying colors. So I had all this training before I was even 14 years old. So when I got out on my own, I knew exactly how to have my own apartment, live my own life, keep it clean. If I hadn't perceived being in Kansas as a threat, I wouldn't have had the skills I had when I got to California. Now, of course, I'm out here in California. And you date, of course, if you're interested in ever being married, having kids. And sometimes you can break up with somebody and there's not a whole lot of reflection going on. There's some amicable thing that's going on, that some circumstance where you understand why things didn't work out, 
has really nothing to do with who you are as a human being. And other times, it uh, throws up your guard. You don't know why this thing happened, right? I've definitely had breakups at times where it was like, I don't know why. I don't know why this person's walking away. And later you might find out they were dating somebody else or something like that. doesn't matter. Sometimes these moments are totally devastating for you. And I remember going to work. I had recently uh, uh, broken up with a girl. She had just told me, like, everything was great, and then boom, it was just like some other dude had come around. He was available. He would expressed himself. She kind of always liked the guy. And it was like, what was it? It was her ex-husband's roommate's brother or something weird, right? And she'd known the guy for a long time. So he had juice with her, and we had just met at work. So I really didn't have any problem with her at all. I was just shocked. And I remember sitting at this brand new job. I got my first dedicated internet job. I've been coming out of the database industry. And I remember sitting there and I'm super heartbroken, but I got a function. I got a brand new job. I got a function. And it's a new discipline where it's like, man, I've never done this before for a living. At least clinically just that, right? But what it did was it made me stop and think about things. Who am I? What Was I just being ridiculous with that relationship? Was I not reading something, writing that was on the wall? The truth of the matter was no. Uh, it was all hidden from me. I didn't know about this previous sort of budding relationship. She ended up having two kids with that guy. So it was, it was the right choice for her. But it makes you think about who you are as a person. Being in a tech career uh, path, the other thing is, is that technologies will be at the number one apex of all solutions in the world, and then overnight, they disappear. It's a wild thing. But all your skills are sort of in that basket, and so you've got to go, oh my gosh, I need to diversify more when things are going good. Now, I'm going to hop around a little bit for relevance and for its impact. One of the reasons why I tell you guys, if you ever get a business, to take care of it, is that I had a situation where I had built a business from scratch, a video game company, very, very successful. And I found that I had some very junior employees that had never been upper management people before. And believe me, you can't learn it uh, just because you want to. You never hand out jobs like, well, you just be CTO. <laughs> no, no, no. If they don't have any experience leading other developers and being a technical lead and really understanding what that responsibility is, you do not hand out any jobs whatsoever. If you're going to do their job, then you keep the title. You're four titles. It's better than to pass it out and find out that they can't perform their duties and you've relied on them to perform their duties and you end up eating things. I'll give you a really good example. Those of you who've listened to every single episode, a lot of this is a repeat, so I apologize, but hopefully get sort of the Paul Harvey to the story. I had a contract with the Ty Warner guy who invented Beanie Babies. We were doing a Beanie Baby site and we were doing a Ty Toy site. It was worth roughly about $3.5 million a year. I was going to the bank depositing half a million dollar checks. Okay. We lost that contract at the last second because I had two CEOs, CTOs, excuse me, 
One that was focused on one area development, one was focused on a different area development. Plus, the new guy who brought us this gig, great guy, but he was very junior, didn't understand the severity of what was going on. He had a bug. He had bought some software off the shelf, off the internet for $500, and it had a flaw in it. <clears throat> My, we had a north branch in LA and a south branch in Orange County. We were pretty big. The South Branch had developed a replacement module for that module that he purchased. And we found a bug that even Macromedia at the time, before Adobe bought Flash, hadn't been able to figure out. So we fixed it. So we got this new thing. And it's in-house. We own it. We don't have to pay any money for it. I gave it to this dude and said, look, get rid of that module that you bought because it's got a flaw in it. I guarantee it. If the founders of the product can't find it, that product has also got the bug. Oh, okay, yeah, sure, I'll do that. He didn't do it. That eventually, imagine a high-profile website, like a Beanie Babies website, where little girls are putting in codes and building a little world, just like the Barbie site. And all of a sudden, it just freezes because of this one little bug that we fixed. He didn't swap it out, told me he did. And a media uh, a animation company was in between us and them we could have done the animations, but they also had the gig already. This dude throws down just like a crazy negotiation tactic and basically tries to say that my company is incompetent and that they should do the development. They don't have any developers. Okay. They eventually folded really fast after this. He drove the company to the ground. But we lost a $3.5 million deal a year for 500 bucks. So you want to be a good person and you, you equate that to just handing out rewards for people that haven't earned it. It'll make you stop and it'll make you think. And when you have those mistakes that happen, those failures that happen, they make you a better person. And it makes it to the point where if you ever get stuck in that situation again and someone is stomping their foot on the other side of the table, potential partner, I want to be that role and they don't have that role. The interesting thing is, is uh, you can just tell them that story. You know, here's why I'm not giving you that role yet. You're going to have to earn it. You're going to have to prove it. And you tell them the story. Now, if they don't appreciate the story, and they're still stomping their foot, you kick them out the door. Sorry, you're a liability, man. You're not even willing to acknowledge reality, right? And sometimes you can pay them the same amount of salary, it's just they don't get the role. So in the end, when it comes down to a judgment call, it's still you that makes the call. What I'm trying to instill in slowly, and I know you probably feel this already, is that when we get knocked down, we typically, depending on what kind of person you are, we will blame ourselves too much. And there's been psychological studies I read this in the late 80s from Psychology Magazine. It was an interesting study they did about people who divert blame to other people, other things, other circumstances. They never take to blame themselves, which sounds like a hideous behavior. And you definitely have to be careful if you're going to consciously engage in this behavior, okay? You'll become extremely annoying to everybody you know. But what they did in this study was they figured out that the people who do that actually are more successful. Now, I'm going to give you the Paul Harvey to that little story. It's not that the people who do that 
sit around and go, well, do you know what happened? Do you know what happened? And they tell you that story. You know, do you know what happened? And they have to tell the story a hundred million times in their lifetime as if anybody cares. The truth of the matter is nobody cares. Okay. They don't actually do that. The most successful people just go, okay, we screwed up. Let's move on. Let's not get into wasting cycles of precious life in a blame game. What's that going to do for you? Right? The only thing you could possibly do is assess what went wrong. Who failed? It's not punishment time. Maybe you get rid of that particular person out of the equation or you adjust their participation out of the equation and you try again. But that's in a group scenario. It's a little bit easier in a group scenario, to be honest. It's when it's all on us. It gets a little more personal. This is where you're going to have to have some tougher skin. Here's the cool thing. Play that game with yourself as well. Is it ever valuable to get into a blame game with yourself? It's really strange. I've got friends that are probably clinically depressed. When you listen to them talk, they've had really less failures than most people who are successful. The problem is, is that they will sit around and mope and blame themselves Sometimes in a reverse psychology attempt to get others around them to go, oh, it's okay. You know, you're good, but you're good. And they're trying to get that adulation by attacking themselves in front of others. It's not productive behavior, right? Here's the cool thing. What if you could live in a purely positive life? Meaning, when you fail, you just go, oh, that was wild. That was crazy. All right, well, okay, what the hell happened here? Okay, well, he did that, she did that, I did this, or I did all these weird things that I shouldn't have done. You re-engage. Now, a lot of the things that you risk in life are based on opportunities. And you'll sit there and go, well, that opportunity just, just sailed. I'm not going to get a chance to do that again. Hmm. The, the truth of the matter is this. When something becomes a real unique opportunity and you fail, well, there's plenty of people out there that you worship uh, for their capabilities. You consider them sort of a mentor, even though you may not have met them. Maybe they're famous. Maybe they're dead and famous, right? And they've got stories that go like this. I tried once with that film company and they turned me down. So I changed the script and I tried again and they turned me down. And so I changed the script, right? And eventually they went in. I think the, uh, the story with Hampton Fencher, who did Blade Runner, he was a stuntman, which is bizarre. I met the guy. Doesn't look like a stuntman to me. But apparently he was. And he had written Blade Runner based on uh, Philip K. Dick's book, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. He got turned down four times. And on the fifth time, I think it was either the fifth or maybe it was the sixth, you know, you never know when someone says, I got turned down five times. Maybe it was the sixth time he got through. But he finally sold a script. Having never sold a script in his life. He was married to a very famous actress, but he was only for a couple of years in the 60s. I think uh, it was Men in Black. Men in Black kept trying to get sold. They turned it into a comic book. They tried to sell, they sold a bunch of that and then went back and I think 20 different film studios turned them down. But they had to come home every time they got rejected and keep going. Why? Because they knew their franchise kicked ass. They knew it was a great idea. They didn't do what one of my friends does, which is to 
shoot himself even more. Like he gets to the studio and they shoot him in the leg and he goes home and shoots himself 10 times. Not quite fatally because he doesn't have the courage to die. Uh, and then he just never goes back for any more. Makes excuses his whole life, right? Right before I moved to California, my my uncle, who's an eye doctor at the time practicing, he's now 90. He, uh, he told me that he had somebody come in. He was from California. And he told me this story. My uncle went to optometry school in L.A., so he wasn't uh, devoid of California knowledge. But he said, oh, this guy said that he went and he tried to get into the Hollywood thing, which wasn't my goal when I went there. But he said they just ate him up and he hated the place and they, they took all of his great ideas and they made him bad and then he moved back. And he just hated California. And this is the good California, okay? This is Reagan as the governor of California. And then the weird guy that was the governor when I got here was doing a great job. And I don't know if my uncle was telling me that to make me gun shy about coming to California or if he was just telling me. So I took that story with me and I came to California. I didn't come out of any level of spite towards anybody in my family. My grandmother actually unfortunately thought I was angry at somebody in my hometown. I was like, no, man, I'm, I'm never been more popular in my hometown than the day I left. And I think I told you guys, like, I wept literally silently driving out of my hometown's city limits. I just remember just, just not blubbering, but just going, wow, man, I am making a sacrifice, dude, you know. And so I got to make this count. I'm losing you know, access to all my relatives and just life back there, a simpler life. If I had to do it over again, I probably would. I would change a few things um, that I did here since I've been here. But, okay, I took that little mantra of that dude and I said, okay, well, I'm going to see if I believe that to be true. And I categorically found that not to be true in any of my experiences. But the big thing was collaboration. You have to learn how to collaborate. You have to be able to enjoy what a collaboration produces. That it's not only your idea, it's everyone's idea. And when you put out something like a video game, and man, you can see the features that way back, like two years ago, three years ago, that dude said we should do this. And everybody thought it was impossible. And even the coders said, I don't know, man, that's a lot of work. I don't even know. No one's ever done that before. And they ended up going home and dreaming about that feature and going, okay, let's see if we can figure this out. And boom, it shows up. It's a big deal. It's a really fun thing. And, and films are just exactly like that. When they come out and you've written a line and a famous person says your line, it's like, whoa, that's crazy. Someone you respect, of course. But what if the universe has this as almost a constant? Okay, life's going good. Well, this person's interested in what we call growth. They want to be the best they can be. Well, if we just keep it all bread and butter, it's all super simple. They're going to stagnate. Maybe that's okay. But it seems like they keep calling out to the universe to get a little bit more. A little more understanding of the universe, a little more skills. They want to be an expert and not just good at something. They want to be a master and not an apprentice. And it's, believe me, it's fine to be an apprentice. It's fine to just go to work and do your job. But if you want that extra stuff, there's a price. And so the universe shocks you back into reality. 
shocks you to look in the mirror. One more time. Who are you? Right? I've told this story before, but when I finally got out of the, uh, before I made my game company, I, I had worked at EA for, let's see, seven years as a, no, she's is that right? Yeah, seven years as a contractor, two years as full-time. Each one of them had rewards that was uh, that was pretty amazing. It was very slow at the beginning, first three or four years, really, really slow. But eventually I did a soundtrack, um, soundtrack elements for Knockout Kings, doing music for that. That was cool. Just was the right place, the right time, right skill set. But I get out in 2002 during the recession. I just had some money in the bank and I'm just sitting there looking around going, man, I've been wanting to play video games, a couple of them, but I haven't been able to because I've been working too much. I got 50 people at work, right? I have to take care of. Very aggressive. I was the lead engineer. Very aggressive. Lots of politics. Lots of crazy. It's a total crash or burn at the end due to AOL screwing up the deal. All right. So I went home and I played video games for about 40 days. My girlfriend at the time walks in and goes, what the hell are you doing? I said, I'm relaxing. She goes, you can't relax. You got to get going. You're going to run out of money. And I was like, yeah, you're right. So I sat and wrote a platform, um, a Perl platform, because PHP hadn't quite taken off. I eventually sold it several times to all my clients, my celebrity clients, using it to make the websites and stuff, because there wasn't any WordPress, right? It was very good. I probably used it to like 20, 2012. But it wasn't until 2013 when the 2008 crash finally caught up. It took five, well, I guess about four years and change to finally kill my game company. Now imagine this. I have worked extremely hard, definitely fallen down a couple of times in that process, but always kind of fell up, you know? So now I'm out. And I've been in the industry for, let's see, 20 years, 20, 25 years, I think. Yeah, it was like 26 years I've been in the industry. That's right. And I was like, who am I? I don't even know who I am as a person anymore. I've been doing things as a CEO, as a director, as a manager, and I'm doing everything for the greater good of even a vision I might have created myself, which was my game company, right? And... I didn't have infinite money. I had some money saved up. Unemployment was coming in. And I just fell into this weird routine. I go down to the beach. There's a pizza place that doesn't exist anymore. I made the best pizza, man. I get a couple slices, eat them, go across the street. It's the dead of summer, 20, 2013. It's like May. And I sat out there shirtless with a notebook with nothing in it, right? So you just write whatever you want to write in it. I did this for almost six months. I was just chocolate brown by the time I was done. And it was really just trying to figure out who I was as a human being. What did I want to do with my life? Okay, I got a clean slate again. The gaming industry was dying left and right. Mobile was killing game. It's still the same way, right? I'm hearing companies like Electronic Arts losing $250,000 a month on Star Wars games. And you're like, how can I beat that? How can I even get a franchise like that, make a great product like they did, and then I'm going to lose 250 grand a month? I don't have that kind of money. So I started writing another platform. I started writing a product in that platform that helps you write movies. I need to get back on that because it's something that's never been made before. Trust me. And it's all based on Robert McKee's rules. But then I get a call out of thin air. And this is the way it happens, man. You get 
something bad that happens. And sometimes the universe just makes the phone ring. And it was my first employee for my game company. She'd gone off and become a programmer, or not programmer, excuse me, an employee at a state college in Long Beach. She says, look, I need a coder. Can you help me find a coder? We got a bunch of products that need to be written. And I said, well, tell me about the products. And all of a sudden I'm thinking, I just programmed a new platform in PHP and jQuery. And it's beautiful. It's amazing. Let me bring this to you. I'll be the coder and I'll polish out the code for free, my platform, and I'll, pay, I'll charge you for the tool. All of a sudden, two and a half years later, I had made some money. And that allowed me to start my LED startup company. When you get knocked down, it's a whole boatload of emotions, isn't it? One of the biggest emotions is sort of being lost. Another one is being potentially overwhelmed by the loss. You're also surprised that this thing occurred to you. And there's something we need to say about negative events that occur to us, that happen to us, right? When it's something that is a response to an action that you have taken in your own life, you try to do something and it didn't work out, that's one flavor of loss. The other flavor of loss that virtually all of us have experienced is losing someone out of this world. They pass away. Unfortunately, due to the medical recommendations of global institutions, uh, a lot of folks have lost people in the last three years, and it will continue. All right? They're saying that cancer was going to go up 77%. Pfizer just bought a record, uh, record purchase price for a company that makes a cancer therapy. Not a cancer cure. When those types of events occur, it is the sharpest of emotions that you could feel in the negative realm, in my opinion. Again, the same things apply to the personal version as well. Very seldom do we have a blame game that will ever benefit us in those extreme losses. You may even, you may even be completely correct. But at the same level... What good is it going to do you? Almost everyone I know in this world who has had a loss due to a very specific reason, someone being careless and they're still alive and their loved one was a result of the carelessness of someone else, they will go through the Kubler-Ross uh, anger, denial, negotiation, acceptance. It doesn't mean that they forgive, but they have to go on with their lives. And so, the more, let's just say that those events typically don't happen very often, right? The loss of a person out of our life who should be still here based on their age, okay? If under some weird circumstance, and it happens around the world, when they go interview folks in war-torn South Sudan or Brazil or some of these like Hades or something where murder is just the, you know, the number one pastime. And everyone in these camps has lost their parents or a parent or their brothers or their sisters or whatever to war and just sheer violence. 
they can talk about it way f- more freely than we can in the Western world where it doesn't happen like that. For us, it's a drunk driver. For us, it's some crazy person. It's a medical regiment. What the, the difference that we can potentially see and maybe leapfrog without skipping the mourning process. The mourning process is a completely different, extremely important process. And we all do all of these things differently, of course. But the faster we can get to the point of honoring the person who was forced to leave against their will, the faster we get to heal and the faster we get to live in their in their honor, right? Um, in high school, I lost uh, what I consider to be a mentor and a, uh, I can't call him a best friend, but he was definitely a close friend. And we had just, I've told this story a couple of times. This guy was two grades uh, ahead of me. One of the coolest dudes in school, man. He was super popular, very handsome guy, but he never let it get to him. You know, he was never acting cocky or anything. Just a gentle soul. Dated one of the most beautiful girls in school. And he got on the back of a motorcycle, which then was going up a hill and hit a golf cart that this kid had driven onto the highway without any headlights. Doesn't matter. He was, he was literally perpendicular to the highway. And he had been told earlier that night, do not drive this on the highway. He was a drunk idiot. That guy got um, himself killed on the uh, golf cart. He got his passenger killed and he got my buddy killed. One girl was sitting on a folding chair on the top of the uh, golf cart. She was just thrown in the air and landed on her feet. She was fine. The driver of the motorcycle was in a coma for a long time, eventually woke back up and has made actually a pretty amazing recovery, but it took years. He lost his life to this accident. But I had just played pinball with my buddy. I think it was Hot Pursuit pinball game with the big uh, carousel on top. This guy had partied at my house. I knew him. I could say hi at school, and he was always really gracious. And he basically passed the the juice baton to me as a sophomore by acknowledging me in front of everybody else. And so I got some of that coolness on me, right? And I was just like him, very respectful of any positivity because I just bounced around seven schools, man. It was like I was glad to be in the same hometown for the rest of my graduating years, right? But I had played pinball with this dude every night for like weeks. We just found this little timetable. When I got off work, I'd go, it's like 11 o'clock at night. But this was a Friday night, I believe. I had gotten off work. I came and ate my frozen, my microwave pizza. It was like an AM, PM or something. Or Amco, sorry, Amco station. And he and I would just play and take turns and talk. And just, I was getting to meet this dude. And he was just as cool as I thought he was. And then we said goodbye. See you tomorrow. And then poof, he's out of my life, right? For whatever reason, okay. Yes, uh, I was kind of angry at the guy that drove the golf cart on the highway, but I didn't know him. That dude, he was uh, at least, he was probably five years older than me. I immediately went into the mode of like, my buddy didn't get to live past 19 years old. I think I was a senior at the time. Actually, I was a junior, yeah. I was going into senior year. So when I moved to California, one of the little packs I made inside my mind was Randy and I are going to California. 
the life he didn't get to live. I'm going to live it for both of us. And I think I succeeded. We've had a lot of fun. But I didn't let that kill me. I let that fuel me instead, right? I didn't play the blame game for more than a couple months, tops. I mean, I don't even think I did that. Nothing I could do to bring him back, right? These are lessons that life teaches you. And the weird thing is, obviously, the repetition of a pattern is the way that we learn how to process typically what is conceived as the unprocessable, okay? I'm going to give you a little weird analogy here. There's a great movie that was made in 1967 called The Dirty Dozen. Lee Marvin is the head actor who plays a commander who has got to take 12 dudes out of a really crazy prison and take them on a mission deep inside Germany's enemy lines before the invasion and try to kill as many officers as possible in this palatial palace. They're going to parachute in and there's a crazy plan to get in. It's one of the greatest films you'll ever watch from that era. Why mention this? Well, he had to turn a bunch of like what you might describe as like degenerate, undisciplined people who literally had chosen to fight the system under all regards and turn them into people he could rely on in life, right? By the time they got to the mission, everybody's got their act together. Except for maybe one dude, Telly Savalas. <laughs> Oof, he plays a crazy character in this one. He was Kojak back in the 70s. We need to surround ourselves with people like that because it will cut down on the amount of disappointment that you're going to have in your life. I said a long time ago in one of my first episodes, because I feel like it's one of the greatest lessons you will learn in life, is that as long as you're relying on human beings, we're flawed. We just are. We have weaknesses that we don't know. We have weaknesses that we know that we're not telling other people. And sometimes we're immature and people will ask us, can I rely on you in this one area? And we'll say, sure. And we, we're not reliable. Maybe we make it through the eye of the needle, but sometimes we don't if we're not honest. The best thing you can do is just be honest and go, well, you know, it's definitely something I'm interested in, but I really don't have the chops just yet to be at this expert level that it seems like you want me to be at. If you're willing to work with me and understand I'm going to probably have a few failures before I get to that stream of success, then I'm good for you. Otherwise, you might want to pick somebody else. But I really do want that position if you're interested. The pattern that I'm trying to introduce to you is the way that we solve problems in a community setting, a business, your best buds, whatever, gets internalized inside of each one of us when we negotiate with ourselves. Because we have lots of requirements that are a part of our life, right? You got to do this, you got to do that, you got to do this, you got to do that. And you have to be able to be honest with yourself. And then, just like you hiring yourself in that scenario I just gave you, where you're like, I don't know, I'm going to try. Make sure that if you fail, it's no big deal, right? I mean, it's a big deal that you're going to go back in and go get some more and try again. But you, wanna need, you need to stop and do what companies call postmortems. 
postmortems are, okay, <laughs> we tried that and some stuff went right and a bunch of stuff went wrong. What went wrong and why? This isn't a blame game. A good postmortem will make everyone feel amazing. And whoever leads the postmortem needs to be a very mature individual that ensures that everyone at the table is not feeling attacked. They know they're not going to be attacked. That even if we mention someone by name, it's not a blame game. We're simply trying to fix things. We're trying to improve each member at the table. And even if they did a good job, we want to make a great job. They did a great job. We want a phenomenal job. They did a phenomenal job. We want a miracle next time. If possible, we're all human. That also needs to be communicated. There's been a couple movies. I think Woody Allen made one and John Malkovich made one. Being, being John Malkovich is the Malkovich one. Where they portray a bunch of individuals living in the brain of an, indi of an individual who's the lead character. And typically the actors inside the brain are not the actor that's playing the outer body. And they portrayed this a couple times. What's interesting is everybody who's touched those scripts already has an understanding of what I'm telling you. And they're dramatizing it into a comedy where we have these weird individual personalities within our personality. And all that means is when you have a preference for something, you, be hit, you bring and almost like re-register your, your CPU with instructions, the program that is your love for that one thing. And, you know, you've heard that in America, at least, when they worship things like the Super Bowl, domestic violence calls sore during the Super Bowl because of a wife doesn't understand that the program that runs the day of the Super Bowl is a very Neanderthal, uh, primitive version of the man who's watching sometimes. You don't get in his way. You don't talk to the guy. You should probably plan to be with your girlfriend's. If he expects you to do some womanly things, just have it all set up in the morning and get out of there, right? He can serve himself. And when you come home, expect to find a shithole of a house because he's, he's gone into that primitive mode. But maybe if he went to church earlier that morning, he was a gentleman, he was a father, he was a God-fearing man, but as soon as that television turns on, that program ends and the new program runs. We need to understand what program we're running at any one point in time. Sexuality is a horrible program that has been absolutely degraded over the decades. You know, I'm, I'm going to tell you, I have a whole episode on porn that I've never published. It's like, I don't know, five years old. I may publish it for the uh, Patreons to see. But one of the things I talked about, I probably have to put on Rumble just so I don't get a strike. We can be responsible for some pretty stupid stuff. And I think people are finding out now that porn has just basically corrupted the, the male mind, and unfortunately some females too. It makes you think that what is fictional on camera is real in your life. When you watch a movie movie, and you see people respond in certain ways, behaving heroically or being villains or whatever... Most of us don't go home and go, that's me, or that's you, or that's the way this and that works, unless it's some serious you know, documentary kind of movie like Schindler's List or something. But when they watch porn, oh my gosh, all the dopamine's flying all over the mind, and it's all imprinting fictional scenarios that don't exist in your life. All this erectile dysfunction is literally proportional to how much somebody watches porn. Think about it. As soon as porn became free, 
I mean, maybe it's the pharmaceuticals paying for this stuff. I don't know. Their little blue pill thing went through the roof. And now it's like in your face, like you will absolutely positively have this medical problem. You know, when they ask you that question, I said it earlier, you know, would you change anything about your life if you could? I think it would probably be foolish if you didn't have at least a few things that you would change. But it's a butterfly effect, so you got to be careful. Every person who gets asked that question, sort of in an obtuse way, they think about all the bad decisions they might have made. And if they answer the question, well, I probably wouldn't change anything. What does that mean? That's a pretty deep answer, isn't it? I wouldn't change anything? Hmm. Let's just say they would change a few insults they might have put out, <laughs> you know, save some face here and there. But overall, eh, I could probably change five things in the last 35 years and, and breathe a huge sigh of relief that some feelings I had hurt over the years wouldn't have been hurt the way I hurt them. But I have a lot of mistakes in there, tens of thousands of them, and I'm keeping them. Why is that? That's because the person I am today could talk to you on a microphone about these problems and have this understanding. And when I'm not talking on the microphone, I'm managing my life based on what I have found to be the greater truths of life through my mistakes. You know, I don't know when I finally got the bug. Like, I've always written code, right? Now, back in the day in the 80s, this is an analogy for perfecting your life. Back in the 80s, you had no memory in your computer. I wrote a whole paint application with a font in 32K, okay? When you are programming in such a tight scenario, your code has to be, should be as perfect as possible, okay? For any of you, this is a digression, this is funny. Any of you saw the Netflix, uh, what was it, season four thing where you had a choose your own adventure thing? The kid was writing a program, a game back in the day, and he had rim statements in his code, and then he immediately announced as a plot twist that he was running out of memory. And those are, those are comment lines in your code. No one would ever put comment lines in code when you only have 32K. And if you ran out of memory, all those lines get erased immediately. Get all kinds of memory back when you get rid of your stupid comments. Keep your comments on a notepad, dude. Kind of funny. But at some point, I got bit. And I don't know when, but I wanted my code to look like art. I wanted other coders to look in there and go, damn, this stuff is clean as a whistle. Smallest amount of code, but it's still readable. Because there's coders out there that are insane. They write one line of code and you can't figure out what the hell it does, but it does a lot of code. It does a lot of functions in this one little glop of code. But if someone else can't look over your shoulder and take it over if you get hit by a bus, it's probably not worth it to go down that deep unless you write a lot of comments about it, which nowadays is no big deal. The reason why I mention this is the following. If you, well, I should say this, every human being has a level of excellence that they feel like they want to live up to. The unconscious version of that is, oh, I'm, I'm just living. I'm just living. I'm just making it all happen. And, and it sometimes that laissez-faire opinion about their capabilities actually produces some pretty amazing things. They're just super gifted. They just make it happen. It's crazy. I envy those people uh, greatly, right? But I think they're pretty rare. The rest of us make a choice of how dedicated we want. What in life do we want to have be the priority in life? Is family the most important thing? 
Is your career most important? Can you quarantine the two and keep them both at maximum? I think the answer is yes to that last uh, equation. But it drives you. It drives you every day to see how much you're capable of putting out and how well it's going to be programmed and how well it's going to be executed. It's your legacy in the end. And it's also how your employer will look at you. Both a prospective employer is going, show me what you've done. And you might say, oh, I know, I write really beautiful code. So I'm going to actually show them the code as well as show them how it functions, as well as answer any questions they have about it, right? When you get to a level of self-devotion and perfectionism, which I have a whole episode on, your failures cease to hit you as hard. Why? Because you need to get back in the game. It's just, well, you know, think about a guy who's trying to become a major league baseball player and he's in a batting cage and he's swinging and he's not quite hitting them that day very well. Well, that person knows there is no option for putting down the bat unless you're going to completely get out of the career itself. So you just keep going back. And you know you have good days and you got bad days. Maybe something's on your mind. Maybe you pulled something the day before and it's, it's making your, your swing a little bit less. There's all kinds of therapy to get basketball players to make their free throws and now three-point game, right? Three-pointers when I was young was like, whoa, got a three-pointer. Now every game's like 60% three-pointers, right? The other one is to pace your energy levels as you're dealing with these failures. If you're exhausted, take advantage of that exhaustion to give yourself a break of persecuting yourself through an error. Hey, there's no one you can mention that's your hero that hasn't failed more than you. They just hid him from you, you know? Who's going to write a book? Steve Jobs' autobiography on his greatest failures. They all should write that book, but they don't want to because it kills the legacy, right? Uh, Unfortunately, as human beings, because we know we're imperfect, we want to give off this... um, this notion that we we don't make mistakes. It makes us bigger than life. And the truth of the matter is, you actually will make less mistakes the more you practice, the more you fail, the less mistakes you make because you learn the pattern of failure. Oh, if I do that, it gets screwed up, right? And I'm going to share with you here the greatest piece of advice I had towards perfectionism. I've said this probably half a dozen times in 700 episodes, 700 plus. And it was a dude who uh, said to me, he goes, look, this dude told me, he goes, it's, it's better to take a shorter amount of time to do the job right than a longer amount of time to do the job wrong. And of course, when you first hear that, you're like, what did he just say? That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. How could that be the wisest thing you've ever heard? You know what that really means? There's no shortcuts in life. You do it the right way because there's only one way, and it's the right way. Now, we all know you can skin a cat a couple different ways, but you're going to have to skin it in a way. It's a horrible analogy, by the way. You're only going to be able to do it in a a right way because all these shortcuts always end up uh, creating tasks that have to be resolved in the future. Well, you know, I, you know, I'm on a programming project right now where... 
a programmer was learning how to code in a new platform. So he invariably created tons and tons of shortcuts, thousands of them, okay? And now I'm saddled with fixing those shortcuts and doing it right. And then I have to think up a new way because there's many ways we can do this. And so I have to look at the business model, look at the logic of what we're going to need in the future and how fast particular areas need to scale. And so I have to make things have to upgrade things perfectly so that when we want to put a new wing on the house, it's cut, paste, go. And it's the most gratifying thing to get it right. I watch a lot of B-movies that are on RiffTracks.com. And one of the interesting things that you find in watching crappy old movies, and some of these are great movies, they're just making fun of them, but a lot of the bona fide B-movies that are like so horrible they're fun, that kind of uh, description of them, Scene by scene, they're cutting corners. They're not reshooting. The director doesn't have any guts to tell an actor that was the worst performance ever, or maybe they simply don't have the talent. But even if they did have the talent, which maybe they don't, they're making excuses why they can't get the right performance on camera. If you had to pay for film and the actor sucks, we'll grind them down off camera. Hell, spin the camera and they'll film on it just to make them feel like it's a real take. And then when you finally got them tuned up, put the film in, okay, now we're going to do the real take. And how many movies have you seen, and this is life, okay, how many movies have you seen where the actor is kind of shitty at the beginning of the movie, and all of a sudden they fall into character, and man, they're just great the rest of the movie, right? Denzel Washington's son is in the movie Creator, which I think is a great movie. Make sure you have the best soundtrack possible. I mean, the best sound system possible, excuse me. Soundtrack's going to deliver. Without the sound uh, on perfectly, the movie will not be what it's supposed to be. But I thought for the first 10 minutes of the movie, his son, which I don't know his name, I forgot, he was kind of rubbery in his performance. He wasn't really the character that I was interested in watching. He was kind of laughing through his lines and smiling a little too much, which is usually the uh, epidemic of an actor feeling privileged to be in a movie. And he shows up to the set with a big giant grin on his face going, I can't believe I'm in a movie. Can't believe I got the lead role. So they're smiling through their role until the will calls, I mean, you know, sorry, the casting calls get to the point of grinding his soul. He has to get up, you know, five in the morning and be ready on set and do a bunch of prosthetics and weird makeup. And then all of a sudden doesn't get his fun. So the smile drops off and they start acting out so many lines and seeing other people act lines and the context of the movie starts to take shape in their brain. And all of a sudden, boom, they're acting properly. They're actually the character that they're supposed to be playing. Well, that's us, isn't it? You go get a new job where you kind of got a greeny, smiley face, big giant eyes, you know, and then it starts to grind your soul a little bit. And you're like, okay, we're playing for keeps here. You know, this is a real deal. It's a real business. I didn't just join an institution with millions of dollars in the bank to pay all this payroll and rent and advertising because they were just goofing off. They're serious about making money and making the product successful. The older you get and the more you go through these scenarios, you can walk right to that front door and ace and the person in charge who hired you goes, that's a new guy. Watch what he does. Or watch what she does. Boom. And you hit it. That's why in Orange County, I don't know if this is happening in the rest of the world, but there's an epidemic in Orange County of young girls who are probably from the age of like 20 to 23. Mainly girls. I, I don't know of a lot of dudes. But they're like, I'm a life coach. 
they'll post it on Craigslist. They'll, they'll talk about it. Got cards printed. I'm a life coach. And I'm like, what? You're a life coach? What have you, do you remember the last 10 lives that you lived that you can bring me advice? They don't have any advice yet. They haven't done anything yet. And if you're already giving people advice, that means you haven't worked anywhere in your life, right? There's some gifted people in this world sometimes, but I'm telling you, they're, they're, um, they're a reincarnated Krishna soul that is talking to you from, you know, a thousand years of experience. I'm not some kid in Orange County. The, the question comes up every once in a while, are there really shortcuts in life? Are there? Well, what did my former boss tell me? Got to pay attention to the words. He said, it's better to take a shorter amount of time to do the job right than a longer amount of time to do the job wrong. What does that really translate to? That means when you're young and you're dumb, you go the long route, thinking you're so smart, and you're not, <laughs> unfortunately. You don't have any wisdom yet. You have knowledge. And you do things wrong. But the more you go through these failures and you figure out the price you're paying because you're constantly creating crap, you're like, man, I'm tired. I want to have more free time to my life. I don't want to go home stressed that I might get fired because I don't know where I am at work with what I'm doing. And so I got to learn the right way. Now, it might be a human mentor. It might be Chad GPT. Whatever it is, you got a lot of resources today I didn't have when I was a kid. You had to know a dude. If I wasn't in Silicon Valley during the explosion of the internet, I wouldn't have been able to create so much in 1996. I started that year, January 1st, knowing that the internet existed. I kind of knew a website existed, but I understand how it came together. By June, I was giving a presentation to 650 people in an auditorium in Texas. I got a standing ovation. I showed them my web server, my web client, my FTP package, my email package with enclosures, full GUIs, because I learned. And why did I learn that so quickly? I had a boss who was a genius. I had some mentors around me, and they just said, this is, it's easy, just do this, you know. To this day, I can't really believe that we're able to accomplish so much in such a, from March to June. I just had March, April, May, June. That was it. Like four months. But the right education, you can get to that shorter amount of time to do the job right than you'll ever get by yourself. So don't be stubborn to get good education. So today you can take a course online, so many different locations, Udemy, a bunch of different, let's tell you, if you know what questions to ask, ChatGPT is a free professor. But let's loop back to the beginning. When bad stuff happens, however you define that, I want you to look at the velocity of your daily life. I think that you will probably concede that it comes to a screeching halt when life goes bad. And you're finally looking at every second going by instead of letting it all just fly by. And I don't know of too many negative things that happen to persistent people that don't turn into benefits. The only time it turns into a super bona fide negative is when we let it get to us. We give up. I got several episodes on the details of picking yourself back up. Calming your soul. That's another episode. I want you as powerful as you can be. I've said this 150,000 times on the show. Don't exaggerate, right? 
the only way that we win the game in this rapidly changing world is to get control of ourselves, right? And you may feel very sufficiently in control of yourself and you're like, well, dude, the world, you know, still going down this, down the tubes here. I'll make a prediction about what the world's going to need, what it needs today and what it's going to need even more and more as days go by until we start winning back bona fide victories in the name of freedom and protecting humans, right? Ways of life that respects life and does no harm, where the the laws actually protect the innocent, right? I have a, a title that I've said several times on the show, and it's called The Chieftain. Many of you are chieftains. I know of several personally who are my friends through the show. They are absolute chieftains. I don't mention any names because I'll leave out a name and I'll remember it later and I'll feel like crap. But you know who you are. The world is going to get segregated more and more. It'll get segregated due to cultural preferences. You like the older, more safe ways and someone else is like, I just like chaos and destruction, right? They're the joker watching the whole world burn, right? The only reason why that happens is because people don't think they can succeed. So they want everyone else to fail with them, right? The alcoholic wants everyone to be an alcoholic with them. You gaining control over your life gets you closer and closer to the best chieftain you can be. You always can improve your chieftain gene. But I'm going to remind you of an analogy I've given probably a couple times on the show, but it's something I open up. If I have a sufficient amount of time, if I'm doing a three-hour lecture at a college, I always open with this analogy for the students, and it usually gets them their eyeballs on me all three hours, okay? I want you to think about this one. Let this one boil in your brain a little bit because it's a really cool feeling, okay? I'm going to start off with an analogy and I'm going to loop it back to us, okay? The analogy is this. Let's say that Vegas is going to have a poker match for the championship of a particular year and they're inviting 10,000 of 10,000 applicants. It's an open audition. I mean, it's an open application. You just have to pay your little fee And they're letting 10,000 people play poker. One rule, to be the champion. One rule is never lose a game. There's no rematch. If you lose, you lose, you're out. Now, without being good at math, you still know, okay, you still know that one person is going to win every single game. There will be a champion. That's guaranteed. Isn't that weird? Oh, the guy in charge or the gal who's winning, it's going to change a lot, but there's going to be one person that never has lost a game. And they're going to walk out with the $100 million thing and a trophy. And for the rest of their life, they will have lived a victory that, that will make them feel wonderful every day they wake up in some metric, right? What if I told you, you are that person conceivably times infinity, okay? As a human being, now I I believe we're souls, of course, but the genetics that you're inside of today are the byproduct of your family winning every single poker game that life has ever thrown at this planet. Floods, famines, 
wars, sicknesses, whatever. Okay? That's you. And that's me. That's the mathematical truth of our existence. Whether there be eight people on this planet or eight million, eight billion, eight trillion, it doesn't matter. That's us. Now, we know that lots of people don't take advantage of that and they simply impregnate somebody during peaceful times. Well, during peaceful times, maybe there's not a whole lot of credit we can give to the game. But during bad times, which the world has had a lot of, we made it through that eye of the needle over and over and over again. What does that really boil down to? It boils down to there's nothing you can't do if you put your mind to it, which is a cliche that most people play off. But why do cliches even exist? Cliches exist because they're true. (laughs) That's why. Your ancestors have been at ultimate, penultimate levels of perfection, of knowledge, of survival skills, of tool-making skills, of tool-operation skills. They have looked at the vista of society and went, oh boy, here comes the horde. We better get ready to fight. And they fought, and they were the victors. And the other folks didn't make it, but your relatives did. Over and over again. So, if you ever want to get down on yourself, think about that one. Think about that one. If you're remotely proud of your surname, and you know, there's sometimes your immediate surname relatives aren't exactly the ones you want to emulate, just understand a couple generations back, they were extreme badasses, okay? They were, they could just eat grit for breakfast. And say, give me another, you know. Let's get all this grit out of the way so I can have a strawberry sundae, all right? I grew up in a family that made sure that we understood our relatives. Did you know your relative was this? I got a relative. You can look him up. Look up Bullet Hole Ellis. He's one. Uh, you can look up Lewis Allen John, the oldest, one of the oldest surviving Civil War um, soldiers reported to Grant. You'll look it up. You can just read all about the dude. But we've got doctors and inventors and scientists. And even in my generation, we had doctors and scientists and people that just under just, just hunkered down and learned stuff and then passed it down, right? Like I told you, my uncle, my mom's side, that dude taught me quantum physics at nine years old. And he taught me like I was an adult, but he also knew how to boil it down so I could understand it. And then he was like, then we went into general relativity and special relativity, right? So I would know what they believe to be true. Later, I changed my mind about a bunch of that stuff, but still, I had the foundation to argue in my own mind, ethereal sciences versus, you know, Newtonian physics, right? And how to meld them together to both make their discoveries work, but through a a medium that is the ultimate unified theory, right? You can do the same thing with your life, whatever it is you're up against. Now, sometimes when you get older, you might make excuses like, well, I'm old. I'm tired. I'm done. Nobody's, nobody cares about what I do. Well, you must have brothers and sisters that make you feel like someone has to care about what you do. <laughs> because when you have no brothers and sisters... 
you do stuff for yourself a lot of the times just to go, wow, that's cool. But there's almost no service or product that you can invent or perfect or refine that someone won't purchase from you. And maybe you're not the person to to build the company around it. You just make it patent the thing and find some people that want to move it around the world for money. Get yourself a good attorney, sign your rights very carefully, and make some money. You were like, man, you know, I was 70 years old and I thought I was done. By 75, I had a new patent and I moved out of this dinky little apartment Social Security was paying for and I got myself a house. Nothing too big, nothing fancy. I got money to hand out to either relatives or be a philanthropist and hand it off to people who are qualified to get it in your judgment. Life is a video game and you're playing it, right? There's all kinds of analogies like that. Life's a script. Rewrite your script. So you have a better ending. It's honestly true. But when I first started this show in 2015, I was telling you the old old analogy about being the pinball in the pinball machine, right? And at first in life, we just get hit by the bumpers and the flippers and all that stuff, the kickers. And then eventually, some point, you know, between probably 20 and 35, you go, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not satisfied with being told what to do all the time. I'm not a jerk about it. I know I got to cooperate and collaborate with other human beings, but I don't think I'm where I want to be. And if you don't stop because of potentially a failure that slows the whole game down, you seem like you lost everything, right? We've all had that feeling. Oh my God, I just lost everything I loved. Okay, let's stop. All right, somewhere in my brain is a typewriter. I can rewrite my script. Somewhere there's a controller. I could play the game a little bit better. You know, I was, there's a game I play. Here's a funny little story. A weird little analogy. You get these great analogies at the end of the episode. <laughs> a little game I play, a little uh, game where you make wood. And I found out recently that by following the script of the game when they're like, you got to build this now, you got to build that now. We'll give you an award if you build this right now. If you follow that lead and you build it through the whole thing really, really fast, it will slow down this one thing that you need to have happen. But if you build half the factory and refuse to build the thing that's like sitting there bouncing up and down, you can build me now. Oh, don't you want to build me? It'll feel so good if you build me. I'm going to make a bunch of jingle noises and it's going to be great. If you don't build any further than halfway, these little cards come out that upgrade certain players in your game. And one dude's really rare. And the thing is, you won't get a card if a, if a little lumber mill thing isn't, isn't, doesn't exist because the guy doesn't exist yet. And they won't give you a card for that dude because you couldn't use him because it doesn't exist. So what I did was I cut down the lottery numbers down to half the amount of folks in the game. And now this super rare card that shows up, well, now it's part of the lower count of cards that come out anyway. And I get that dude up to a level four, and all of a sudden my money-making apparatus is automated while I go to sleep. I build to the rest of the base in two seconds, and I win, and I kill. And I'll even post, you know, like my screenshot up, and people are like, well, how did you get that much money? That's crazy. That's way higher than the rest of us. And I tell them, I said, just don't go all the way. And that's part of what life is like. You, you go through the motions of what society says you're supposed to do. And sometimes you want to take a pause, study what you're doing. 
make sure that the next step that society expects you to do is the one you want to do, or better yet, that you're ready for it, that your skill sets are higher. Human beings used to be more mature. Just watch old movies from the 30s, 40s, 50s, and you'll find out that when women were very strong individuals and all this crap about them being beat up is all bullshit, I mean, they would, they would sock you out, right? But the maturity level of a human being, say 18 to 20, was ready to actually multiply and create kids because of their education, being reading, writing, and arithmetic, and just life in general. There weren't a lot of distractions. People understood what it was like to raise children. Plus, they're usually from fairly large families, and they raised their brothers and sisters. So when they had their own kids, they made instinctually good choices with their kids. Hence, a lot of the great creations made in the 50s, all these crazy, amazing people we got out of the 50s, right? Who became our heroes in the 70s and 80s, right? But today, the level of maturity of a 20-year-old is, I don't know, in terms of the 40s and 50s, maybe an 8-year-old, a 10-year-old, absolutely devastatingly immature people, not ready to procreate. And so we're getting tons of broken homes, right? The kids are more disturbed because they've experienced things they should have never experienced because their parents were children raising children with no knowledge and no mechanisms in their brain to upgrade when they found out they were making a mistake. They don't even recognize they're making mistakes until the kid is running away at 13 years old because home is crazy. I have known people that waited to have kids. They got married early enjoyed their marriage, enjoyed figuring out who they were as individuals so that a lot of the arguments that mommy and daddy would have had with children present no longer occur, at least as frequently and definitely not as violently, you know, verbally speaking. And that's huge. That's utterly huge to recognize that, right? Well, as an individual, it's the same exact thing. When someone goes to college for something that they love, especially a trade profession. They want to be a chef. They want to be a doctor, whatever it is. They have to get certified. They have to have the degree or they can't do that job. It's not, even, not allowed, right? For good reasons in most cases. They're pining, right? They're going to college and they're pining for four years. In their brain, they know they're getting prepared to do this career. They're making sacrifices, especially if you want to become a doctor. You're making super sacrifices. Now we know today... Uh, some doctors are great and some doctors are horrible, but I trust that any of you are going for that. You're going to be great. It's not a bad thing to plan. It's not a bad thing to sacrifice. It's not a bad thing to invest in yourself. And we're so gratified all the time. We've got goldfish brains because of mobile devices. We really do. People can't pay attention in conversations. You can't speak complete sentences anymore in a conversation to other people because they're just going to be like, yeah, whatever. And they're off on some other personal conversation. The amount of times I'm talking to somebody at other lounges and they start a conversation with somebody else and they ask me the question. I've talked about this before. They ask me a question, some serious question about politics or something. And I'm working. So they've stopped me from working. So they've asked me to stop working and making money to answer some question. I'll be halfway through the answer, which, believe me, is very tight. And they'll look at someone who's walked in the front door. Hey, you know, they're talking about some fucking game that's on the TV or some stupid bullshit that happened the night before. And it's like, really? Don't ask me any more questions. And so I'll just sit there and stop answering questions. I'll just act like I don't hear them. Why? 
because I'm more important than they are for my life. I have to take care of number one first. And they're not interested anyway. They're just acting out life, bantering. And the ones I actually schedule meetings with, where I go, you're going to be at the lounge? I'll meet you there. We sit down with two sticks. We're eye to eye for an hour, just exhaustively going over the last, well, the current affairs that happened since we last had a chance to talk. That's extremely rewarding. But I'm just going to leave you with one thing about that. And that is, I've got a, I got an episode on friendship. I've said this a couple of times. It's probably one of the most important episodes any human being can watch. It is the culmination of a lot of hard lessons I've learned personally. It's way back, maybe season one, I can't remember. Again, Rumble and BitChute are your friend for both, both, uh, for all the videos. BitChute has them all for sure. They just go to deepthoughtsradio.com, search on friendship. When you have a conversation with someone who is deeply interested in what you're interested in, you will have this phenomenal emotional reaction. And it goes something like, well, I, I tell you how I describe it afterwards. I always say, it feels like my brain was on for the first time in a long time. Like I was really engaging the circuits that I have spent so much time making more dense and more dense by solving problems, by talking, by solving problems, by making episodes. I think that's why we're drawn to each other. And especially if you make it this far in an episode, we have that connection, you know? And it shouldn't be a rare thing, and you shouldn't have to necessarily go online to get it. But it, it's kind of that way, isn't it? You, get, you, want to make, you want to create circles of friends, whether they be virtual or online, that can actually be really good, or in your personal life, if you're so lucky to be able to pull that off, that are desperately interested in what you're interested in. Because if you're, um, there was an analogy that Bill Cosby made once, and he said, you know, if you want to accomplish a goal, then you have to set it, and then you have to go and research how many steps you think it's going to take to do that job. And then you need to start doing those steps. And the other brilliant thing he said was, you're going to find out that sometimes you thought it was going to be 10 steps and it's actually only one. But the inverse is correct too. You thought it was one step and it's 20. When you surround yourself with the right mentorship and friendship, you will accelerate that process to points of such velocity that you, it becomes a very enjoyable, organic process where you're like, oh my God, I'm just killing this, man. Every day I'm just getting better and better and better. To your surprise, it becomes fluent. But also remember this, they have proven time and time again that when you're in the presence of other human beings, you are communicating with your brains without talking, without even intentionally trying to communicate something. If you do intentionally try to communicate it, there's something wild that happens. And I, the story when this, my buddy, um, I had two guys, Dave and Robert, great guitar players. Robert was insane, okay? I mean, insanely good. As good as anybody in the world, okay? When I sat down and learned a guitar with those guys, electric guitar, there's a whole bunch of technique over acoustic, right? I would just learn something in, in two seconds, like, wow, this is how it works, right? And then I take that guitar home and try to practice in my bedroom. <laughs> and 
If I, if I did it the same day, I could maintain what I just learned. If I sleep on it and get up the next day, I'm half of what I was the day before. And I need to get back with Dave and Robert and go, show me that again. Or can we play that again? And I come back to me. And then when I go home, it goes away. Until my muscle memory with them metabolizes in my brain to the point where my body remembers where to put my hands and how to work the pickups and all that stuff, right? That's how anything works. And it can be uh, something you need to police too because someone could have a bias and you might find an adaptation of something that doesn't work for you because you have their bias and you don't really want their bias about how to do something in a particular way. You don't want to play a funky guitar. Maybe you want to play a more metal guitar or the other way around. You have to be aware of the little nuances of their, their preference, their bias, right? Anyway. Hopefully this is valuable to you. I won't make these episodes that often. I've got some flashy ones coming here. But these are important, right? We got to put the mortar between the bricks every once in a while. Anyway, if you haven't been to deepthoughtsradio.com, please go. Everything's up there. To the PayPal and Patreon folks, thank you so much. You make it happen. Take care of yourself and someone else, and I'll see you in the next Deep Thoughts. Over and out.